0: With your host Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell.
1: Uh, Doctor Martin Siegel. Okay. Uh, We have our friend Michael on all the time. His side hustle is pretty cool. He does all this stuff out in space. So we always like to talk a little science. And we haven't been able to talk science because we've been doing politics and other stuff. So let's talk a little space science, buddy. I just watched it again. Every time I watch it, I can't believe it's real, even though I know it's real. But I was watching um, the Falcon Heavy boosters return and self-land upright again. I don't know how many times. I think they said this is the ninth time they've done it, something like that. Every time I see it, I still can't believe I'm watching it, and yet it's real. But the thing is, and you've discussed it before, but I want you to reiterate it because maybe because these things need to be repetitious in our minds before we really understand a technological advancement, right? That's one of the biggest leaps in space technology we've ever had is being able to do that and explain why that is.
2: Yeah, um, Elon Musk is like kind of a prototypical smart person. He has lots of ideas, most of them are bad, but occasionally he has one that is fantastic. And the fantastic idea he had here was that throwing the booster of a rocket into the ocean is like throwing away a 747 every time you fly. And if you could land those safely, you would save millions and tens of millions of dollars on spaceflight, make spaceflight way cheaper. And it turned out the technological challenges were significant, but not insurmountable. If you have someone who's determined and will throw as much money as he can at it, that was a problem that was solvable. And so, yeah, every time I watch these, I feel like I'm watching a science fiction movie that this is not something that we're used to rockets just sort of splashing into the ocean and capsules coming down and having a rocket land on its tail automatically is just it seems like we're watching a science fiction movie, not reality.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. I want to ask it this way because you know I'm a history guy. I love my history. I think we get a little tunnel visioned on history. I think we still, in the collective American consciousness, think of the moonshot as cutting edge technology. And I don't think we've kind of crossed the barrier of understanding. Like the entire computing power of NASA at the time is probably about what your iPhone has now.
2: Less, like probably. the
1: technological, the technology jump to what we're doing now. We still think of the moon, like when we say achievements of mankind, oh, moonshot, like that's number one on just about everybody's list, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that was, you know, half a century ago. And we've got so much more technology and so much more computing power. And the computing power is the really big deal here because the because the, the R&D and the calculations, being able to do those things faster, that's the big change that I don't, I think that's kind of on us, though. And maybe NASA sh- and SpaceX should educate the public more on this. The the technology is so far beyond there, but we don't have the physical achievements optically to put
2: with that advancement. Is that a fair way to put all this? Um, I, I would say kind of. Um, many of the fundamental problems of space travel have not changed. If you're going to send something to the moon, you still need a big honking rocket. Um, I mean, that's what the Artemis mission is about. Is that a scientific term, big honking yes. rocket? How many honks was a
1: Saturn V exactly? What is this a unit of measurement or of space or time? The
2: uh but we still need there are certain physics aspects of this that we need to put things into space. Now being able to return stages, being able to use much smarter computers, that cuts the cost overall down. But we still need to make some more fundamental breakthroughs if we're actually gonna send people into space on a regular basis. But I think the cost now is about a thousand a few thousand dollars a pound to put things into space, and we need to cut that significantly if uh, or I need to lose a lot of weight if we're gonna uh, be putting people into space. Um, so, but I do think like uh, one a better illustration of it maybe would be the uh, recent Mars Landers, where you had. If, there, if you haven't seen it, you can Google seven minutes of terror to see the video NASA made about how they're landing things on Mars now. And it's insane. They have this re-entry, they have these parachutes, they have this sky crane that drops it on. All of that has to be automated because it takes a few minutes for the signal to reach us from Mars. So it, it has to be robotic. We have a, a flyer on Mars, a little robot that flies around, a little drone. And that that I think is a lot more illustrative of just how far we have come since the Viking days when we just dropped a probe on there and it would just sit there and do a little bit of surveillance and that was it where we have these missions now that go to these and roam around for years and do all this explanation and we're actually going to eventually have a mission that will send uh, rocks back from Mars to Earth uh, to be uh, more fully investigated. So I think if you look at the exploration of the solar system that we've been doing, that's where you really see the breakthroughs of the last 50 years.
1: Let's talk some old school uh, space tech, which I know you actually have a little bit of a passion for. The Voyagers are still one of my favorite things to check up on. Like I I actually go to the website every now and then just how far that quantify it for us. Non-mathematical, non-scientific people like me, just how remarkable, you know, (laughs) you're sending something up and that, you know, let's go back in time a little bit. You know, you talk about your iPhone having computer power. I mean, the, Your standard microwave convection oven probably has more circuitry than the voyagers have on them and yet this thing just keeps pumping along and doing its job and now it's out there farther than we ever dreamed it would be i find this a remarkable piece of tech even though it's kind of old school it's kind of boring to some folks i just find it amazing
2: well it's interesting um uh, a fellow astronomer tim hamilton and i had a discussion on twitter yesterday about what, what what is the oldest code running right now oldest computer code And someone brought up voyager which has been in space for 45 years to give you an idea of how long that is the people who know how voyager works are retiring or dying and nasa is really worried that they're not going to have enough people who understand how the spacecraft works to keep it going and it's it's billions of miles out there it's outside the solar system actually it's into interstellar space and it's still sending signals back uh there are papers being published based on Voyager data uh, that it's it's taking of the outer solar system. And we're learning a lot about our sun and the solar cycle uh, from what's from the data Voyager sending back. So that is it, it is a remarkable spacecraft, uh, the, both of Voyagers.
1: Yeah. Hammer Robbie would like a word on that oldest running code, by the way. Um, <laughs> I remember as a kid, you know, I'm 42. I remember as a kid, we kept talking about the gold records they were putting on them. Remember that like yep. for, so, you know, it's been in the national consciousness so much. I think we just kind of forgot about it, but it's pretty cool that we have something in interstellar space and it works and it still works. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. We know the SpaceX stuff. I want to ask you about the private space travel real quick because it was a new thing. We've got a data point now we've been doing it for a while. You know, we've got, you know, the different companies are doing it. They're put sending people up, coming right back down in different things what's your perspective on it now you said it was going to be a net good it raises awareness even though some of it's kind of you know celebrity stunts and stuff like this you still think overall that it was going to be a good we've got a year or two of them doing it now you still feel that way does it feel like it's going anywhere else or does it feel like that's kind of plateaued for the moment
2: I think it will be a while before that kind of technology is within the reach of even you know upper class citizens let alone middle class, but I, I think the it, the technology will continue to improve. I mean, two years is not a lot on the time scale of technology. I, I think if um, that we're going to see more and more efforts to make space travel cheaper and to make it more reliable and safer, that for the so that it can be within reach. I mean. Even if we ever got to the point where space tourism was a thing, this would be, you know, a once in a lifetime thing—the cost of a car or something like that. So it will never be like a trip to Cleveland or something like that. But um, I, I do think we continue to make progress around this. It's, it, I mean we're, it's not on the short time. Bill. I don't think I'll be able to travel as a space in my lifetime, but maybe my kids
3: will.
1: Yeah, what was this? I forget who or I would cite this, but they basically said like until it's first class airline type fees, it's not going to be a mass marketing type thing. So until you get it down in that, you know, let's say under ten thousand, get it down that five to ten thousand dollars a seat. That's not it's not going to be mass marketable. But you get it under a hundred thousand k, you you got a lot of people that you know those worldwide cruises. Those are 30, 40, 50 grand. You'd have a lot of people saying, "Oh yeah, this is a life saving thing once in a minute." You'd open up a large swath of people just doing it that kind of way, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, um, I actually had a, a, a poll on my Twitter account once asking how much people would pay to go into space. And I think the general consensus was between one and ten thousand dollars was where, where people were thinking, I don't think we'll get down to that range. But I do think we'll get down to the what you said, like, you know, round the world cruises or something like that, where this could be a once in a lifetime thing for people. And I wouldn't want to see space become the exclusive purview of the super rich. But for a while, that's kind of what it's going to be.
1: Well, I mean, that's how airline travel started. Yeah. And, you know, so that's just I think that's going to be somewhat the nature of the B, which is why I defended the rich people, you know, the Bransons of the world and the Bezos of the world. Like, no, you've got to let them break the ice, even though it's going to be a little exclusive because there's nobody else to do it. And we've talked about that before. Uh, Michael Siegel, give us something we don't know about. Um, you always surprise me with stuff cause you're smarter than me and I don't know this stuff is coming, but, uh, what should we be looking for? I know the web space telescope, the pillars of creation photo, I think got that actually got going viral because it was just such an amazing image, stuff like that. What should we be watching for
2: in the next couple of months as far as space goes? Um, I think the big things web is going to be sort of dominating the news that some of the big results on the first stars and the first galaxies and star formation are just going to start coming out right now they're they're sort of putting out the, the the pretty pictures of stuff we know is interesting but uh there are they were oversubscribed by a giant factor for their first year of operations and so there's a lot of people gathering data now for big programs that are going to start coming out so i i would i would pay attention to uh so i would look for a lot more hubble uh excuse me JWST news the next uh, few months. And really some of the big questions that we wanted JVST to answer are going to start, we're going to start getting the first uh, data on those.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple.
1: Sadder topic. Um, we talked about the observatory down in Puerto Rico. You wrote about it. Our friend Dennis Saunders wrote about it because he's actually from there, been there a couple of times. Um, doesn't look like it's going to be replaced and or rebuilt. How much of a loss is something like that? We understand time moves on and, you know, things can't always stay the same. But, you know, we've seen other facilities get up. You know, Green Bank just got upgraded again in West Virginia. Looks like it's probably going to be there for a long, long time to come. When you lose a piece like that, and you know, personally, because you've ran studies down there, you've been there. What does that do when you lose a scientific tool like that? Is there something that's just next man up and you put something else in or is it a loss and you got to kind of adjust?
2: It's just a loss. Um, There is never a shortage of projects to do on telescopes. We have, you know, I do a lot of work on small telescopes, you know, 36 inch, 40 inch telescopes where we're still finding them useful. They're still being used all the time. And so, even though Arecibo was an older facility, although its uh, instrumentation had been upgraded, that's a capability that we can't replace. And so, um, I, on the one hand, I understand why they're making the decision they're doing. On the other hand, I also think it's an unfortunate decision, especially because of the experts and personnel we have down there in Puerto Rico and what it means to the island to have that facility there. I think, uh, I think it's a big loss. And. There are other facilities that will fill the gap as best they can, but this was a unique facility.
1: So you don't think there's any hope either?
2: Um, I am dubious that that they will they will do that. Money tends to be to be tight, and rebuilding that facility would be quite expensive. So uh, I wouldn't. It I'd be delighted if it happened, but I'm not banking on it.
1: Yeah, it's a sad situation. All right. That was a sad note End us on a happy note, though, because you have this wonderful YouTube channel that is doing gangbusters because you've got, you know, all these thousands of followers now compared to my dozens of followers. You know, give me a little shine there, buddy. What are you doing? Uh, but I love the YouTube channel. It's really taken off. That's why I want to ask you, though, is like, obviously, because you are, you know, an astrophysicist, you've got the credentials. You've actually flown spacecraft. So you get you've got some street cred when you go to talk about these things. It's got to lighten your heart, though, that even though it's goofy and you're talking about sci-fi stuff and not hard science, that's still entry-level science. I remember uh, James Duhan, who played Scotty, talks about how how many engineering students over the years would come up to him and tell him like, "Oh, I went into engineering because of you." And he he's like, "Man, I'm a retired sergeant. I don't know anything about engineering, yeah. but you know, wounded at D-Day, by the way. For folks who don't know, you need to go read his st- Jimmy Duhan story. He's amazing. He was actually missing fingers on his hand from D-Day. That's got to lighten your heart, though, that people even though it's entry-level science through sci-fi, that's still got to make you feel good, right?
2: Yeah, um, the response, I mean, we're still a pretty small channel, about 4,000 subscribers, so uh, just enough to... to, to, uh, Humble brag alert. (laughs) uh, Just enough to make me nervous that I'm going to mess something up, but not enough to to make me famous. But um, it... uh, it is heartening that a lot, I get a lot of really positive comments from people saying they really like the the way I explain these ideas and they find it interesting. And my last one was on multiverses, and so I got deep into like quantum mechanics and stuff like that. But uh, and, but people seem to like it, so um, so it's uh, it's it's very it's gratifying to know. And for me, I started the channel because I like because it's the kind of channel I like to see. I like to see people who are knowledgeable about something, sharing their enthusiasm about a subject, like whether it's music or movies or military strategy or history or whatever it is. And uh, so for me, it was kind of just mostly an outlet to share my enthusiasm about science and science fiction. And uh, and seeing that that uh, has resonated with some people is very gratifying.
1: Yeah, it's a great channel. Make sure you check it out. We will link to it. Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, completely different topic for a minute. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things real quick scientific okay because you're a science guy right (laughs) i hate to do this to you but i'm gonna do it anyway uh which was the worst and the most harmful to science was it the believe the science or was it the scientists themselves and their conduct
2: i think it was the believe the science i think um that uh, i think a lot of scientists were trying to be Clear on what we didn't know and the limitations of what we know. And there were a few, like, um, I, I've talked previously about um, a few uh, scientists who went on Twitter a year into the pandemic and said, okay, here's the things I got wrong. Um, I think that once this got fed into the media machine, and especially once you had some scientists cross over into that media machine, it doesn't deal, the media machine and the political machine don't deal well. With uncertainty, they don't deal well with this. Is the best information we have. They they want certainty. They want and they want uh, absolutes. And they want to say this is absolutely what we. Want. And you know, I I think that's where the the major errors were made. But again, that's not unique to COVID. I mean, we have, you know, we have a lot of hysterias in this country. We have a lot of things we do to mitigate what our very small dangers and very low risks uh, that we get uh, tend to be hysterical about. And one of the things I've blogged about quite a bit is the uh, hysteria over sex trafficking. It's not that sex trafficking doesn't happen. It's that the way people think about it and the way they try to prevent it is completely disconnected from how it actually happens and the scale of the problem. And so, again, this is more of a dysfunction of our system that was exposed in COVID-19 again, as I said earlier, it was the biggest crisis since World War II. Crises have a tendency to bring things into focus. There were a lot of things that were exposed by COVID that we were doing stupidly or wrong that we still haven't fixed. Like I remember early on, Massachusetts, when they were having their big outbreak said, all right, we'll allow doctors who are licensed in other states to work here because we we don't have enough doctors. You know, we won't, we won't require them to have a Massachusetts license. Like, well, why don't you do that overall? We have 50 states and they have pretty good standards. Why do I need a different license for each state? This seems like a waste of time. And that's just one example. And I think that again, it, this it exposed our tendency to want to talk in certainties, to make our people who disagree with us look as bad as possible, that they don't care about the problem or they actually are in favor of the problem. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about like the real grifters, like you know, people we've talked about who are out there trying to make a buck off skepticism. I am not about the average person who wants to know what's going on here. What do I need to do? Wait, you told me this last week. What about this? And so forth.
1: Yeah, I think I learned that lesson the hard way when I wrote a piece about the mask debate very early on in the pandemic. And I wasn't even, all I was saying was like, because that was when they were just throwing everybody on the ventilators and they were immediately dying after you put them on the ventilators because they didn't know how to treat the illness, right? Mm-hmm. they hmm. And so I talked a lot about the ventilators from personal experience and they're all like, well, what do you know? about?" It? I'm like, well, this is how I know you didn't read the piece, because there's literally a picture of me on a ventilator in the middle of the piece. Like there's yeah. a picture yeah. of me in the hospital bed on a ventilator tied to the bed. And that's when I was like, you know, this this is a good way to tell whether people are serious. Like, like, I know whether you read it or not, because you're starting off with that. I'm like, there's a picture. You don't even have to read the article. You can just scan it and see the picture I'm like, oh, he was on a ventilator. That kind of stuff, I think, really does a lot of harm. It also exposes people. Let's be frank. Part of the problem with COVID was it just exposed a lot of people. Yep. Yeah. So, anyway. I think science, we've talked about this before, but just to reiterate the point and put a bow on a lot of this. I think science has just been behind the curve on adapting to the modern world, especially social media. That, like, look, you can't just put letters behind your name now. People can review your work, and they can search your social media, and you better be consistent. And that's not just them, you know, celebrities are having to do this. Politics are having to learn to do this. (laughs) The news media is finding out the hard way right now that you've got to do this. I think that was a big part of it, too, is I think they're just not used to mass communication and they're having to adapt to it. And it was probably a painful lesson, but I think it was probably a necessary lesson in some ways.
2: Yeah. And I think some people uh, like uh, one of the ones I cite a lot is Ellie Murray, Dr. Ellie Murray. They came out looking good because they were, you know reasonable and talked about uncertainties and so forth. And some people, uh, you know, were way too panicky and way too certain about those things and they came out looking bad. And uh, I think that the scientific community will have to take some time to look back and say, okay, this is not the last pandemic we're going to have. This is not the last time people are going to have to listen to us on a critical scientific issue. How can we communicate better with stating this is what we know, but also conveying this is the best information we have. And as with all science, it is subject to change. We're, we, we should act on this, but we should be aware that more information is going to come in.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, the most appearances on this program ever. We're going to keep that going as long as we can because he's really, really sharp. And he's becoming a multimedia, multi-platform superstar with his YouTube channel. Also writes at Ordinary Time. Let folks know what you got going on, where they can follow you, all the different things you've got going on. Your latest that we talked about. Uh, a little bit earlier, the throughput that is up at ordinary times.com as it is every Thursday. The YouTube channel, your Twitter also wrote a good little book, by the way. You got to go pick it up. Let everybody know what you got going on there, sir.
2: Uh, sure. Um, and Ordinary Times is a good gateway to everything I do, all my videos I post there, uh, so that people can find them. I'm I, actually now that I have a few subscribers, uh, you can just go to YouTube and Google my name, Michael Siegel Astronomy, and you'll find a my video channel and uh, hopefully you'll find something there that you find interesting. Uh, Join the ongoing 2000 comment debate over what the best spaceships in science fiction are. Um, But yeah, that's, that's the best way to find me is usually through ordinary times.
1: We're going to do that one where we talk about the crew and the, uh, the military setup of those space captains too. I can't wait to get in on that. That's going to be a fun one. Dr. Michael Siegel.
2: Yeah. He was my guest. It, Mm -hmm. It
1: I, I just always love, we get so obsessed with the, you just proved it. They get so obsessed with the ships. You forget you got to have a crew to run that thing. Yep. Does the crew match the ship? Because then the ship doesn't work and doesn't make any sense, but we'll get yeah, into that. Not all time.
2: officers either. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, don't get me. Like yeah. I'm a retired Sergeant. Don't get me started on lieutenants. Like, they're, all the lieutenants are super short. I'm like, no, lieutenants are like baby giraffes. They can't even walk in a straight line. You got to like, hold them up. It's ridiculous. Like that's, See, I'm giving you all the good channel stuff. I'm not going to give it to you for free. You're going to have to subscribe to his YouTube channel. Dr. Michael Siegel. Love it, buddy. Thanks for the time, sir.
2: All right. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, sir. Ah, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's the most appeared guy in the history of this program because he's that smart. Way smarter than me, but he explains it so well, even I can understand this. That's why we keep having him back. Our scientist friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, how are you, sir? I am good. How are you today? I'm doing well. All right, let's talk some science to the end the year's out. We've done some lists. We've done some best films there. You did, on Ordinary-Times.com, we'll link to it, you did the top 10 science stories And science things and tech things from the year 2022, how was it the year 2022 for science?
2: 2022 was an amazing year for science. Uh, One of the things that's kind of indicative of, one of the things that's kind of unique to science is you have a tendency for things to take a long time and then pay off all at the same time. Like I as a as a scientist I've had years where I was barely publishing anything I'd hear from supervisors why aren't you publishing and then the next year I'd publish like 10 papers because a whole bunch of projects came to a came to a conclusion at once and that's what 2022 was like we had a lot of long term projects things that have been going for years or decades suddenly pay off we had Artemis go to the moon return to the moon and set up the uh, potential human landing in a couple of years uh, that's been in the progress for over a decade or more. We had JDBST, which I named as the biggest science story of the year. That's been in the works for 25 years and finally deployed and started taking data this year. This year, um, we had a lot of progress on vaccines. That is the culmination of decades worth of work. We had the uh, fusion ignition, uh, where we had a self-sustaining fusion reaction that was putting out more energy than it was taking in. That's the result of decades worth of work by the National Ignition Facility. So it was just a year where a lot of these long-term projects came to fruition and made uh, amazing amounts of progress and uh, had some really wonderful results.
1: Now, why is that? Is it a funding thing? Is it a, these are 10-year projects, these are five-year projects, these are 15-year projects? I know the space stuff, it takes a while for the stuff to get into place and to get R&D, but why is it that it seems to go in a cycle like that?
2: I, I think just... Um, It's just the nature of the beast that the way funding tends to work out, the way scientific breakthroughs tend to happen. You tend to get these uh, these waves of breakthroughs and then periods of time where people are trying to figure things out and so forth. And then another wave of breakthroughs. The mRNA vaccines are a perfect example. This has been something that's been in the work for a couple of decades. But now that it got jump started with the covid-19 vaccine, we have vaccines coming out for a universal flu. We have vaccines coming out for malaria. We have vaccines coming out that can treat cancer. You know, the COVID-19, especially that pandemic, jump-started that particular technology. So a whole bunch of projects that have been in the works suddenly uh, got caught fire.
1: Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. How is a monster hole in the heart of the galaxy, not number one?
2: <laughs> we've we've known about that for a while. So the story there is that uh, the center of our galaxy, the our island of stars, the Milky Way, the center of our galaxy has a black hole in the center that uh, weighs about 4 million times as much as the sun. And we've suspected it was there for decades. We've had pretty direct evidence of it for years. And uh, this was the first time we got actual images of it, thanks to the Event Horizon Telescope, which combines radio telescopes all over the world to get very high-resolution images. And it's just a fantastic result. But the year was just so strong with scientific results that, you know, it just made the top 10.
1: Going down to the top ten, that's your ten number nine. I remember when President Obama put Joe Biden in charge of curing cancer. That didn't happen. Cancer vaccines made progress. You've got that at number nine.
2: <laughs> yeah, we've had a few um, vaccines that are stimulating the immune response to deal with cancer. Now the efficacy rate is still pretty low, um, but when you're talking about cancer, any efficacy is is going to be uh, very good. But the promise that you could wire someone's immune system to attack a cancer in their body and deal with it like it's an infection is very promising. Cancer, we've been on a cure for cancer since Nixon, really. I think he was the first one to declare war on cancer. And people who do research in this will tell you that cancer is not just one thing, it's many things. And there's no, not, never gonna be one cure that addresses all of it. You know, What causes lung cancer? What causes breast cancer? What causes colon cancer? These are different things and have to be addressed in different ways. But the potential to have a platform where you can address multiple different kinds of cancer and probably not anywhere close to 100% effectiveness, but with enough effectiveness to save thousands of lives, that is very promising.
1: So uh, universal flu vaccines show promise. This one's at number eight. Has this one been damaged by all the COVID stuff?
2: I think people are suspicious a little bit of mRNA vaccines, and we can talk about that the anti-vax stuff later if you want. But there has been not as much uptake of flu vaccines generally as there should be. I think a lot of people tend to think of the flu as mild because I talked to a doctor once who said people tell me they got the flu and they didn't get it. Then they say, oh, I had the worst flu of my life. He's like, now you had the flu. You know, this is a very serious illness. I mean, we've had uh, mutual friends get very sick with this. Um, So I don't know why people take it so lightly as they do. But a universal flu vaccine, basically every year, scientists have to guess what the flu strain is going to be, the dominant flu strain. And they put out a vaccine for that one. And even when they get it wrong, it does increase your resistance. It does increase, decrease the likelihood that you will go to the hospital or, God forbid, die of flu. But if you had a universal vaccine that can attack things that all flu strains have in common, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. You could just put out the same vaccine every year, maybe even combined with a COVID vaccine and everyone would be taken care of. So that's, that's a big hope. And there's a lot of been a lot of progress in that in the last couple of years.
1: Okay. That's the science side of it. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. The problem, the problem is that the COVID has so warped this. Now we've got measles outbreaks all over the place. Now we've got other communicable diseases because these folks have gone so far the other way, and now they're thinking all vaccines are bad because of the non-scientific panic nonsense about the COVID vaccines. This is a problem. So you're all excited about this, but if I try to just put something out on social media about universal flu vaccines, people are going to lose their minds. This is a bridged gap that has opened up because of the way COVID was covered that we're going to have to deal with.
2: Yeah, and I wish I had a solution to that. I mean, what what's happened with The anti-vax stuff is the anti-vax stuff has sort of been bubbling away for about 25 years. It was mainly stimulated by a fraudulent study that claimed that vaccines cause autism. And I've tangled with them for a number of years because to me, childhood vaccines are one of the most glorious inventions in history. You know, most people before the 20th century had the experience of burying a child who died of a communicable disease of measles or something like that. And that's something that in the developed world is is rare, and that's mainly thanks to vaccines. And it was also that when they were falsely claiming that vaccines cause autism, I kind of got offended that they acted as the as if autism was like the worst thing that could happen to someone. I mean, you've had Eric Michael Garcia on your show a few times, and he's written a book, "We Are Not Broken," about how you know autistic people are functional. They're, you know, normal people. You don't have to like live in terror that of someone having autism. And so that was an ugly strain that emerged in that. What happened was that you had this pandemic. So that disrupted a lot of people, created a lot of panic and a situation where people were disrupted and sort of looking for answers. And you also had these new vaccines, which a lot of people were kind of hesitant about. I was hesitant about it. And my wife, who's a biochemist and does genetic research, she was hesitant about it. But as the results came out and it became clear that these things were effective and safe, we adopted them. But that ran headlong into a well-oiled, well-prepared anti-vax movement. And it's no accident that many of the anti-vax arguments and platforms being used are the same ones that have been used for the last 25 years to advance this. Now, in this case, you also had the convergence of several other really bad factors. You had, and I won't name names so that neither you nor I get sued, but you had some grifters who figured out that running around lying about COVID, lying about the vaccines, stimulating this distrust was profitable and could get them lots of clicks and book deals and stuff like that. And you also had a political wedge that unfortunately some Republicans have embraced of saying that the COVID vaccines are bad or we should have hearings about them. And Ron DeSantis is effectively running for president, and he's now convening hearings on the mRNA vaccines. Even though a year ago he was boasting about how he was so effective at getting them out, and he was effective at getting them out. And it's bizarre to me because these mRNA vaccines are not only one of the greatest scientific achievements of my lifetime. I mean, we went from nothing to a usable vaccine in eighteen months that is very effective and safe, and it's a it's a miracle. and One of the architects of that was Donald Trump, a Republican. I don't give Donald Trump credit for a lot, but he embraced that idea. You know, he he didn't come up with the ideas, but he did push them to streamline the regulations so that they could get approval really fast. When these vaccines came out, he made the promises of money so they could build the facilities to manufacture the vaccines that didn't exist yet. So that once the vaccines were ready, they could start pumping them out in huge numbers. Uh, that's something that usually puts a couple years delay in getting vaccines because you develop the vaccine and then you build the factory, whereas this time they were doing them at the same time. And it's a it's a miracle and it's really a bipartisan miracle. And it's bizarre to see part of the country. And I don't think it's like half the country or anything like that. I think it's a mo- vocal minority, but it's bizarre to see part of the country turn against these things which have saved millions of lives and hundreds of thousands of American lives.
3: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
1: Yeah, I'll name names. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Let's yep. start with him. Uh, Business Insider actually did a list of 12 of these folks. I won't go through the whole list because these, you know, these deplorable people don't need the, the airtime of it. There's bodybuilders. There's wellness bloggers. JFK Jr. is the biggest name on here because of his name, but he's been known to be a crank. Those 12 people, and I'm, I'll link to this piece, On Facebook alone, those 12 people are responsible for 73% of the anti-vax content on the platform over the last few years when it came to COVID. This is a small minority that's gotten really loud, but the problem is they're converting people because now we have a measles outbreak, something that should never happen. We've seen polio make a resurgence in certain places, something that should never happen. You know, One of the great scientific wins of the last hundred years, defeating polio, that's coming back. Um, and now the, the flu vaccine is going to be a fight every single year. Now we have school board people running under. We're not going to have vaccines to get into schools anymore. They're winning converts somewhere
2: because it's getting worse, not better. Yeah, the, the COVID vaccine skepticism has sort of backfilled into building up skepticism of other vaccines. And
1: it was designed not to interrupt you. That was exactly their design on it, though. They jumped yep. on the COVID. I'm not talking about everybody because some people were just ignorant, didn't know anybody. These JFK Jr. people and those folks that have been running oh, this scam for 20, 30 years, they did this on purpose to specifically get this outcome to funnel people back into their nonsense. Is that, Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, they, saw,
2: they saw an opportunity with a society that was, you know, everyone was kind of on edge and uneasy because we'd had a major societal disruption. There were a lot of suspicions and still suspicions about where this virus came from and so forth. And they saw an opportunity to advance their agenda. And, you know, when you're talking about measles and polio and things like that, these are well-tested vaccines that, you know, save the lives of children and save them from lifelong disabilities. I mean, Mitch McConnell has a disability because he had polio as a kid. There are still people in this world who are disabled because of polio. You know, when this broke out, my my mother, who's in her 80s, she was telling me about when she was a kid and polio outbreaks would happen and they'd shut down the pools and everyone would stay home and everyone would be terrified because of the a horrible progression of this disease. And to turn your back on this is just amazing to me. Like, even if vaccines called autism, which they do not, but even if they did, that tiny risk is is nothing compared to the major risks that you're talking about with these diseases. There's a great Penn and Teller demonstration from their old show. I can't say the name of it or repeat what they said because it uses FCC non-compliant language, but where they demonstrate the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated people using uh, mangoes and bowling pins. And it's just a great demonstration of of how safe these are. And I mean, even putting the COVID-19 stuff aside, you're talking about diseases that are very infectious, very lethal, can cause lifetime disabilities. I really don't understand what's going on. You know, When the COVID, what happened was the COVID-19 vaccine mandates came out and people objected to them. We said, well, we've been mandating vaccines for a while. And I warned that this would happen. And it did. That a lot of people said, well, then we shouldn't mandate those vaccines. And uh, that, that ended up being what happened, that there is this movement to push back against ordinary vaccine mandates. And it's it's really distressing.
1: Yeah, it's not complicated issue at all. You have a right to not vaccinate yourself. You have a right not to vaccinate your child. The rest of civil society has a right to shun you for not being vaccinated. So they don't get the disease that you refuse to get vaxxed for. This is not complicated. This is how all of recorded human history, since we've come up with vaccine, has operated. Mm-hmm. And you have People seem to think because they have Facebook and Twitter accounts, somehow those rules don't apply anymore. But it really is that simple. That's not a breach of anybody's freedom. You have a right to not be infected by a disease from somebody else. They have a right to not get the vaccine, but then you have a right as a civil society to put them over there by themselves because they're infectious. This this is not complicated.
2: Yeah, I mean, remember Mary Mallory we ended up putting her in asylum because she was giving everyone cholera or um, excuse me, um, typhoid. Typhoid. and and she, to her dying day, refused to believe that this was the case and kept taking cooking jobs and killing people because she refused to believe that she could be a non-infectious spreader. And this is long established. I think the phrase that has come up in uh, like libertarian circles is, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. And you know you have a right to bodily integrity, but not necessarily to go into situations like public schools and so forth, where you will expose others. And there are people who cannot take the vaccine, children who cannot take the vaccine for health reasons and so forth. And the exemptions should be limited to them. What we talk about is herd immunity. If you get up to a certain percentage, the virus can't build up the reservoirs it needs to break out. And so you don't quite need 100%, but with something as infectious as measles or polio, you need pretty close. And we've seen as vaccination rates have dropped into the, even into the high 90s or low 90s that we've had outbreaks.
1: Dr. Michael Siegel joining us, talking through the best science stories from 2022. All right, here's a big one that I've heard about all my life. We had the scandal, and I believe it was the the mid-90s, where the guy claimed to have invented cold fusion with a mason jar on a shelf or some crazy nonsense. I forget exactly how that scam went. I've heard about nuclear cold fusion all my life. I've heard about better ways to do nuclear fusion all my life. We actually seem to have at least gotten a step forward in that field though.
2: Yeah. Well, cold fusion wasn't a scam. I think it was more of a mistake that they had a chemical reaction they were mistaking for a fusion reaction. But um what they we have two approaches to creating nuclear fusion, which is what powers the sun. It's very very difficult to create. The previously the the only way we were able to create it was inside nuclear weapons. But you can have a tokamak, which generates an intense magnetic field and squeezes hydrogen atoms together till they fuse into helium, and and that destroys mass and releases energy by E equals mc squared. Or you can have a laser, 192 lasers, blast a little piece of, of hydrogen, and then it implodes inward, and those hydrogen atoms fuse. And this year, we got a breakthrough with the laser implosion technique, where it became briefly, for a tiny fraction of a second self-sustaining and was generating more energy than was put into it. Now, that's a little bit deceptive because you have to power the laser. So the actual efficiency is much lower than that. But it's a very big step on the way here, especially if you can ignite this fusion and it keeps going like that, then then you have a potential power source. Now, with the laser implosion technique, they're doing this once every seven months. You need to be doing this multiple times a second to have sustainable fusion. So it's a it's a tiny step. But a lot of the times with science, just knowing something is possible is what helps create innovations. And knowing that this technique works and theoretically can generate nuclear fusion is, I think, going to spur a lot of innovation, especially now it's going to get a lot of industries. There are dozens of companies that are interested in fusion are starting to invest in this. And I think that's where we're going to see where this becomes uh, practical and commercial where they figure out, all right, how do we make this more efficient? How do we make this cheaper? How do we do this every second instead of every seven months?
1: michael siegel certified scientist a couple times over uh his list of science stories for the year number five intrigues me for a couple reasons remember at the end the middle kind of the crux of apollo 13 the movie you know right before the accident they're talking about they're not pro they're not broadcasting their program because nobody cares because space flight has come become blase and everybody's bored with it it's not exciting then of course Everybody paid attention after the disaster. It was kind of the fulcrum point of that whole movie because those two things happened one right after the other, not in real life, but in the movie, they put them together. Yeah. Artemis went to the moon this year. We've heard about the Artemis project for so long, and it was called a couple other things along the line. It actually happened. I even halfway follow this stuff, and it just didn't seem like a big deal to us. I know to the scientific community it was, for NASA it was, it was like, hey, we can still do this, because that's kind of what's been hung around their neck for the last 50 years is, oh, we never went back to the moon. Well, now they've gone back to the moon. It didn't feel like as big a deal as it should have.
2: Is that a fair way to put it? I think that's a fair way of putting it. We're not really breaking new ground. What we're doing is trying to create a long-term presence on the moon that will enable research, that will enable potential energy breakthroughs, that will enable potential better exploration of the solar system, and so forth. So there. So when you're talking about Apollo, you were talking about getting to the moon as an achievement and beating the Russians and so forth. Now you're talking about sort of recreating some of the beats of that program, but in a way that is more consistent with a sustained presence on the moon and a sustained program of space exploration that has a a much more defined purpose.
1: Here's the thing. Um, We're going to talk about DART in a minute. We're going to talk about James Webb Telescope. We've talked a lot about The Mars rovers, one of the Mars rovers just went offline here over the holidays um, after, I think, five years on the surface, which is a pretty good run for something on Mars, which is about as, (laughs) as much of a hellscape as you can possibly think of as far as getting a rover to hang around. The argument is we've gotten so good with the probes and the other data. Do we really need a manned moon program right now? Because we pretty much know everything we need to know about the moon. How do you counter that argument with, yes, we need to put people on the moon because it's a jumping off point to other things. We can launch missions further out because that's further out to start with. Well, what's the counter argument? Because it is true, our probe technology is getting really dang good now. Why do we need manned space flight off planet?
2: Um, mainly, there are a lot of arguments. The one I always fall back to is humans are capable of responding in a way that robots are not. We're capable of being innovative. We're capable of seeing beyond the immediate moment where, you know, the best results we're getting from research these days are humans and computers sort of working together because computers can do calculations very fast and sometimes see things because of that, that humans can't, but our ability to think intuitively, to think non-logically, to make leaps and connections that a computer cannot is our greatest strength and something you definitely need on a program like this.
1: One more vaccine note, the bivalent vaccines. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I saw almost no coverage of this. Now, I know it got covered under other names because they talk about the quote unquote new COVID vaccines. But you've got this all the way up at number four on your list. And I hardly heard it talked about at all.
2: Yeah. So the bivalent vaccines, um, the initial vaccines inoculated against the spike protein, but that mutated in Delta and Omicron. The new vaccine has two different strains of the spike protein, and that seems to stimulate a bit of a broad response. What we're hoping for is a vaccine that stimulates the immune system to respond to any variant of COVID. Now, there was a very early result published yesterday that showed that the bivalent vaccines are actually not only effective against Omicron and so forth, but are actually effective against this, I think it's XBB, this new variant that has emerged and is taking over in terms of preventing hospitalization and death. I'm kind of you but you hit on a good point. I'm kind of disappointed that the administration has not been hitting this point very hard. I realize that they're afraid of stimulating partisan backlash and so forth, but this really need is a message that needs to be getting out there. I suspect we'll see uptake pick up if there's a surge in covid vaccine and covid cases, but the effectiveness of this vaccine is very good and the side effects are you know, if you've already had the vaccine, they're they're pretty minimal, and so um, I think this is something that we should be pushing uh, a, a lot harder to deal with COVID. We're still losing a lot of people think COVID's over. We're still losing three thousand people to COVID a week. You know, I granted mostly seniors, but you know, their lives matter too, and I think this is something that we need to be uh, emphasizing a lot more with the bivalent vaccines, and one of those things where I think. You know, Joe Biden's decline as a communicator is is hurting his administration because I think, if, you know, the Joe Biden of 10, 20 years ago would have been much better able to communicate the importance of this issue than he is now. I mean, I don't buy these ideas that he's senile or anything like that, but he can't communicate the way he used to uh, 10, 20 years ago. And I think if he could, that would be a big help towards getting people to t- take these up.
1: Now, the Biden administration did take out. Now they're looking at restricting travel from China again. China seems to be having yet another outbreak. This goes to the point, though, because we know we can't trust their data. We can't trust anything they say about COVID, frankly. I I don't want to rehash that whole debate, but no, you can't trust anything the CCP-controlled China tells you about anything. It's trust but verify. The thing about that is their vaccines didn't work. And that's why this is going on. It's not just that they lied about it and covered it up and they boarded people into their homes. Their vaccines didn't work at all. And that's why they're seeing these spikes and these sorts of things. They have to open up because their economy is getting ready to crash if they don't. And it's just showing that their stuff didn't work correctly, whereas ours did. The numbers don't lie in this
2: particular instance, do they? No, the Sinovac vaccine was initially effective. But as the virus has changed, it's basically lost effectiveness in fact there are many countries like singapore that if you've had the the sinovac they don't regard you as vaccinated at all what's what was really telling to me early on in the pandemic was that taiwan vietnam singapore these countries japan these countries shut down travel to china immediately and and some internal emails got out that basically said we don't trust them we're tired of their stuff coming to our shores We're cutting this off before it becomes a problem. And those countries had very low rates of COVID in the initial outbreak, and uh, and did quite well with their response because they knew that you could not trust the CCP. I mean, you just can't. Um, I think um, uh, limiting travel to China and testing people who are getting off planes is very well justified right now because we it is the source right now of one of the biggest outbreaks that's going on right now. We do have outbreaks going on in this country, but they're still at a moderate level, and I think we want to kind of restrict that, especially because with the outbreak that's going on in China, with the low resistance they have because they did not have an effective vaccine, the possibility of a new variant emerging is very high.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Okay, how about the outbreak that wasn't, although it was serious for the people that had to suffer through it, Monkeypox. pox, um, some of the media were trying to build that up, no doubt, into the next big thing. It wasn't. It was pretty much capped off the way you would expect a public health response that was halfway well managed to be managed. This is a very different illness, of course. It has some very specific contact criteria for spreading, unlike COVID, which, you know, we're still not completely sure all the ins and outs of how that spreads. This one, we knew how it spread. They got a hold of it quick. It was not a pandemic. Uh, it was contained quickly. You got it at number two for all the public health failings. This was a public health win.
2: Yeah. Uh, monkeypox is not as infectious as COVID, as you said. Um, it requires very close contact, not necessarily sexual contact, but but pretty close contact. But we had about uh, 30,000 cases in the United States um, and about 20 deaths. There was a panic earlier this year that this was going to break out. It was going to be the new COVID. And certainly this seemed to spread a lot easier than monkeypox had in the future. And in Africa, you will get these occasional outbreaks where it's endemic. But by giving giving lots of people vaccinations, by encouraging especially the gay community to restrict their behavior while this was still going, we are now down to single digit cases a day. And we will probably see this peter out within the next couple months. You know, it's, it's really just bubbling away and it did not become endemic to the United States so far, knock on wood. And uh, I think this was exactly how you want to contain a pandemic. Now, COVID, even if we'd responded perfectly, it might not have been contained that way. It spread differently than we thought it did initially. It, it became a lot more infectious. It spread all over the world. But I think the response to monkeypox shows our public health re- institutions responding effectively uh, to a potential danger.
1: How much is the word you just used important that we don't discuss when we're talking public health? You use the term community. That specific community was at the highest risk. They were also the most vocal about it. They were the most out in front about it and they seemed to come together and deal with it in an expedient fashion. We didn't see a lot of community with the water public health stuff with COVID. We saw a fracturing of community. I'm struck that you use that word because I think there's a lesson there.
2: Yeah, it's, we need with covid we needed to think of ourselves as a global community and to a large extent we didn't and there was political advantage to be had in that there was financial advantage to be had in that there was just skepticism that people have of that um but on the other hand you look at how many people stayed home you look at how many people took the initial wave of the vaccine you look at how many people took the precautions and wore masks and things like that the vast majority of the public did what they could. I think COVID was just too infectious, too widespread, and our re- initial response was a little too slow. And so it looks like it's going, it's becoming endemic. It looks like something we're going to have to deal with for good. Uh, but I think we responded, the public responded reasonably to that. I think we were failed a little bit by public health institutions, and especially failed by the People's Republic of China, which did a poor job of containing it and communicating early on when this might have been stamped out. Maybe it wouldn't have. This was uh, very different from the previous iterations of SARS and and Mars, but uh, certainly their opacity and lying in those early days made it harder.
1: Yeah, how we deal with China and global affairs is going to be a theme for the rest of our lifetime, so we might as well just get used to that one. Okay, scientists, I'm not going to call you biased, but I think there was some bias in your number one pick here. Um, If you go to Ordinary-Times.com, read this entire piece, his top 10 stories of the year in science from 2022. The graphic is the, I, I think it's one of the best space graphics I've ever seen. The Pillars of Creation graphic from the James Webb Space Telescope. You've been talking about this thing for a couple of years. As long as I've known you, you've been writing about it. You were excited about it. You were happy that it worked. Now it's working. You say it's still warming up. They still haven't really cranked this thing to the full power of this battle star. <laughs> um, but go ahead, have your joygasm over at James Webb Space Telescope, your number one science story of 2022.
2: Um, part of that is a little bit of a repentance on my part. I spent many years critical of the program because the cost overruns and the delays and was very scared that it was not going to work and we'd have a $10 billion brick in space. But seeing the success, seeing it deliver everything that was promised and more, crow has never tasted so delicious. Uh, this is really, you know, I sometimes say that the Hubble Space Telescope is one of the mo- wonders of the modern world because of the way it has expanded our understanding of the universe, the way it has created these images that just make people's jaw drop of what's out there. And J D S T is is proving to be a worthy success where you have these beautiful images. Of nebulae and planets and so forth. But you also have these amazing discoveries being made. In the first year alone, really the first six months, it's discovered the most distant galaxy we've ever seen, which has pushed the era which galaxies formed back a couple hundred million years and changed our understanding of how galaxies form. It's discovered water vapor around planets. It's discovered chemistry, chemical reactions going on in planetary atmospheres. And it This is just the beginning. I think uh, by the time this mission is finished, our understanding of exoplanets, understanding of star formation and our understanding of those first few hundred million years of the universe is going to be dramatically transformed. And again, maybe I'm biased because I love this stuff, but to me, that's the biggest science story of the year and will continue to be for the next few years.
1: Dr. Michael Siegel, he's our go-to for all sorts of science-type things, and we have to believe the science, and he's a scientist, so we can believe everything he says. Also got a great YouTube channel that I've gotten to be on, although I killed his ratings. All his other videos were highly rated.
2: No, we uh, we got a couple thousand views, so uh, you didn't quite kill my ratings.
1: Yeah, the new one got 10,000. I can read. I can do a little bit of math. Um, Dr. Michael Siegel, let folks know where they can see you, follow you. We're going to post this piece, Ordinary-Times.com. You post usually every Thursday, but let people know where all your other stuff is too, my friend.
2: Ordinary Times is the best gateway to find my stuff. I post my videos there, so that will link you to my YouTube channel. Uh, It links to my Twitter uh, feed. It links to anything I write or say on the internet. It's uh, just... and. If you go to Ordinary Times, the worst thing that happens is you read one of the other great writers that we have there. We have a whole collection of really fantastic people there. So uh, that's the best way to find me.
1: Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, you do great work. The most appeared guest on this program. Hoping to do that again next year. So if I don't see you between now and then, my friend, happy New Year's to you and yours. Looking to see what science does next year.
2: Well, so am I. Thank you for having me on. It is always a pleasure to be on this show. You're the best, sir. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, the most appearances on the program in history. The streak continues and extends. Dr. Michael Siegel, that's a uh, the DR, real kind of uh, smart doctor with letters after his name for those of you from Logan, friend of the program, Ordinary Times contributor, he flies spacecraft, he teaches young minds, he does all sorts of things. Michael, how's are you, sir?
2: I am good. How are you today?
1: Nah, I'm hanging in there. Uh, let's start terrestrially, if that's still a word. I'm not sure if it is or not. Um, your latest throughput. Every Thursday, he does a science feature, Ordinary Times. This is one we've gone over before, but it's gotten new life the last couple of weeks. The COVID lab leak theory. Of course, we all know about the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We know about wet markets. We heard that, we've debated this for, what, two years now? Yep. But... <laughs> You had to write about it because there's been some new developments that have really thrown fuel on the fire, as you say.
2: Yeah, there was a a Republican report from the Senate staffers this week that said that they thought that the lab leak theory was more likely than not to be true. And uh, Vanity Fair ProPublica did a publication that was based partly on that report and also from uh, diplomatic messages uh, and from the Chinese government that seemed to indicate uh, some very big problems with the operations of the Wuhan Institute. Now that's, we've been getting hints of that for a while, but um, so far there's not been a smoking gun. There, what you have with the lab leak theory is a lot of suggestions, you know, just starting from the fact that it's the Wuhan Institute and the outbreak happened in the city of Wuhan. Now, Wuhan is a massive city and the wet markets have been previously identified as a potential source of a, out viral outbreak. So it's not that's not completely definitive. But when you dig into the Republican report and especially when you dig into the ProPublica report, it's still just a lot of conjecture. There's no real solid evidence. We do know that Wuhan had problems with their BSL4 biosafety level 4 facility, but that's not unusual. Um, that That's not really new news. Um, This summer, there were two papers published in Science, though, that looked at the COVID-19 virus from a biological perspective. Looked at its DNA, looked at its evolution, and they concluded that a zoonotic outbreak, an outbreak from a bat or a pangolin or something like that, was far more likely than a lab leak. We're probably unlikely to know for sure, and we're especially unlikely to know for sure, because China has been very opaque on this issue. Their investigations have been kind of cursory and secretive and they're not really sharing the kind of information that they need to share to so we can definitively nail, nail this down and we might not even if they were we might not know for sure um so i would say that you know a, this is a lot of smoke but not a lot of fire a lot of conjecture and suggestion that plays into a lot of people's priors on this um one of our commenters pointed out you know this the idea of the, that the virus broke out randomly. From a wet market is scarier than the idea that this was a lab leak something that could be more easily prevented but um in the end the evidence still weighs heavily on a zoonotic origin it's not i would say the lab leak is not a conspiracy theory if you're talking about a lab leak if you're talking more of the pandemic, you know bill gates did this so we could all have 5g chips installed on us or whatever that's a conspiracy theory But I think while the lab leak theory is not ruled out, it's it's very unlikely at this point.
1: Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Here's how I break down news stories. And this is where I have a problem with this one. Um, How we get the news is usually just about as important as the bit of news we're getting. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple parts here and you already touched on one of them. We can't trust anything coming out of China because we know they lie, cheat and steal because they're a dictatorship that has there are
2: obsessed over information control. And image why we had the outbreak in the first place, because i time denying that this thing was communicable to humans. I mean, we might not have contained it anyway, but that certainly didn't help.
1: Yeah. So we've got the China piece. You mentioned this is Republican staffers, but it was put out into the media, the mass media by Vanity Fair and ProPublica. These are not two organizations that are normally really super friendly to Republicans and or right wing political entities. ProPublica is very open about being activist journalists. They actually do really good investigative work. They're biased. Just program that in. But when they investigate something, it's usually pretty solid. They know what they're doing. Vanity Fair, of course, is a very progressive liberal publication. Normally, when they agree with something from the right, you would go, "Okay, well, these folks don't usually get along. There should be something to that. That kind of piqued my interest. So. If there's a lot of smoke and no fire, why are we having these convergences, do you think? Because that does get people's attention. That lends credibility for some folks, but are they all just chasing threads, or is there some there there?
2: I think that if this did turn out to be a lab leak, it would be one of the biggest news stories ever. You know, people talk about media bias and the media-bearing stories. If a left-leaning organization were to discover the smoking gun and say, this absolutely came from Wuhan they'd win a Pulitzer Prize. You know, They'd, they'd, it'd be the biggest story of the year that this came from the lab. And it's not, you know, an unreasonable supposition. We have had outbreaks from labs before. The last person to die of smallpox got it from a lab leak in the UK. The, we've had outbreaks specifically of the SARS virus in China and Singapore from people doing research on it. It didn't spread because it was contained and it wasn't COVID-19, which was way more infectious. We have had these outbreaks, so it's not that unreasonable a theory. I think, um, and this is still very early days. There's still a lot of debate going on about the ProPublica piece. I think they may have jumped the gun a little bit. There are a lot of people saying that they mistranslated the Chinese documents or misunderstood them, um, and certainly interpreting government documents from a government like China is is very difficult. And there are a number of other people. There was a virologist who uh, went on Twitter and put out how all his criticisms of the piece that they didn't wait for before they published. Um, So I, I think that they anticipated this was going to be a big story and may have jumped the gun here.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, join us. You and I talked a lot because you were kind of our go-to COVID guy during the COVID pandemic at ordinary times. By the way, we're linking to both the Vanity Fair and ProPublica piece and also the uh, the congressional report. Read it all for yourself. Same thing Michael says in his piece. Read the whole thing for yourself. Make up your own mind. We're discussing this as if you have read it. Make sure you do your homework here because there's a lot of details involved. But we talked a lot about one of the things that really made the pandemic a mess was communication. We learned really quick that scientists and the common folk don't communicate real good. Academics don't communicate real good. Doctors don't communicate real good. And any of those three that are also government bureaucratic officials, they really don't communicate very good, right? We've Mm -hmm. established that. So you understand where people are coming from with this when it's like, well, hey, when we brought this up in the early days, you were deplatformed. You were told, no, you're crazy. Don't even ask this question. And now we're coming back to this you understand where people get a little skittish with this stuff because of the way it was communicated, because of the way it was handled, you know, believe the science, all that mess that we've talked over and over and over again until we're sick over for two years. You know, this isn't in a vacuum. This story is getting more life because of the way people treated it, because of the way people manipulated it, and because of the way you said it before, the way people put their priors on it before. This isn't in a, this isn't in a vacuum. This is a sequence of events that brought us back to this story yet again,
2: right? Oh, absolutely. I think that the lab leak theory was dismissed early on and with far more certainty than it warranted. Um, certainly there was a lot of junk science being done that they said proved the lab theory, like, oh, these sequences only have a one in X chance of occurring. Well, that's why we don't get disease breaks every year. You know, or there were a lot of, I think a lot of people were concerned that validating the lab leak hypothesis would link to really crazy conspiracy theories about a pandemic, or that China was using this as a bioweapon against the West or something like that. Um, but I think that there was a necessity, and I wrote about it at the time, to divide between people saying, this may have leaked from a lab by accident or even on purpose, versus this was some giant, vast conspiracy to kill millions of people or make Bill Gates rich or whatever their conspiracy was. I th- I do agree that there was, Far too early, I don't want to say. Far too aggressive dismissal of lumping this in with conspiracy theories, rather than what it was, which was legitimate. Legitimate question of, hey, there's a virology institute just down, just in this same city that researches coronaviruses. Is there a chance that these are related? All right, it now appears that it's unlikely, but I don't think you can ever rule it out. And so, while I would say pandemic conspiracy theories are disinformation or whatever, or crazy, I would say that saying this came from a lab leak is, uh, while not favored by the evidence, is not a crackpot theory at all.
1: Let's get to the core of this as far as um, we're involved, the common folks on our social media, in the commentariat. This really gets to the core of how do we discuss something as complicated as this? When it comes to this disease, you've talked about it before on this program. Science, good science is okay with getting questioned. It's like good religion is good with getting questioned. Good politics is good with getting questioned. You know, One of your signs of integrity is are you okay with getting questions and handling tough questions? We just touched on the whole, you know, believe the science, you're not allowed to ask any questions. That's not good science. At the same time, there's some line in there where you depart from, you know, honest questions, honest skepticism. I'll go, I'll say healthy skepticism because healthy skepticism is a core part of science, right? Mm -hmm. Where's the line when we're discussing this stuff of, okay, we need to be, you know, discerning of what we're being told here, but it's maybe a topic we don't know a lot about. Before we descend into, you know, crack pottery as you so aptly called it, the conspiracy theory, all the noise and nonsense out there, where's that line? How do we tiptoe up to it, and how do we don't cross it, Professor?
2: That is a very good and difficult question. Um, I would say, look for when people start trying to attribute motives, or trying to hammer it into a political frame, that science concerns itself with questions of fact and when you start expanding that to motives and trying to ram it into whatever frame you want it to be in that's where you're going more towards the crack pottery side so to return to the lab leak theory asking legitimate scientific questions did this come from a lab was this related to lab research you know these are these are factual questions you're trying to ascertain facts can we look at this virus virus's gene code and see that it was engineered can we look at the pattern of the outbreak and see that it was related to the wuhan institute these are things that have definitive answers where you go into conspiracy theories when you is when you say well i think china wanted to do this i think bill gates wanted to do this i think the big pharma companies wanted to do this when you start attributing motives that's where you're le- leaking more and more into conspiracy theory and really mind reading uh and so forth when you're trying to cram this into a political frame of anti-Big Pharma or anti-Republican or anti-Democrat. That's where you start leaning more and more into conspiracy theories when you get away from the facts and more towards speculation.
1: Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us, as he often does. This is where it gets back into politics, though, because you cannot take the political angle out of this. Like we just said, our public health system, we've learned it the hard way. We like to think it's, it's an independent organization. It's not. It's a political entity because it's funded by the government and it's a bureaucracy and there's politics involved. Let's just all be adults. We're dealing with China. That's a geopolitical foe. That is not a fair player. That is not an honest dealer of information and or anything else it, because they're an adversary in a lot of ways. That's where the politics of this comes in, and there's no way to separate that. So how do we deal with that? Because even as we're trying to find scientific truth, Look, all those scientists in China, they're all connected because they don't get those jobs unless they're connected. Right. Let's let's all be honest. So how do we deal with the political part of this? Because as we've learned now, public health has a political component that we're just going to have to learn how
2: to deal with here. I think we that we have to kind of try as best we can to keep the science as a separate issue, focusing science on the facts and less on interpretation. You know, this was something that actually um Anthony Fauci talked about a little earlier on, um, before sort of he became this figure in the in the media. The his job as a scientist was to inform the politicians of things from a scientific point of view. And their job was to balance things and consider the political uh con- consequences. You know, if the scientists had had their way, for example, you would have shut down the entire country for like three weeks, but the politicians had to say, that's not gonna work. What can we do? What's doable? What's workable? And so I think you have to think of the political sphere as sort of being having science as a component of that, informing the debate, but ultimately the political sphere has to take into account. In diplomacy with China, it has to take into account economics. It has to take into account other factors. I wrote a piece a while ago about this. There was a, a piece about how we should have this rationalia, a society entirely determined by rational principles. And I pointed out that that doesn't really work because many of the questions we deal with are moral questions or economic questions that don't have a scientific answer. You know, you take the abortion issue, for example, science can tell you when certain fetal developments happen, but it can't answer the moral question of when is a fetus a human being. When does it have a right to live? That's a moral question that we are debating very fiercely right now. And so when you talk about something like a pandemic, we can inform people what this disease does, how it spreads, how lethal it is, what are the long-term consequences of an infection, how well do these treatments work, how well do these vaccines work, but ultimately that is feeding into the political question of, all right, what policies do we have in place?
1: Right, Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel. You know, I don't like to get into the Fauci stuff because he came became an avatar for whatever everybody wanted him to be. Yeah. But since you brought it up, I got to say it. Here, here's where the problem comes with that is if you're a just the fact scientist, you can't go on TV and do commentary because the second you start doing commentary, you've lost the science. And then when you put the science hat back on and go, oh, no, I'm just a scientist. No, that's not how that works. You're one or the other. You know, you don't get to go back and forth. It's not, you know, science hat on, science hat off. That's where that becomes a problem, especially if you're going to be the guy and that guy. You know, I think he folks like Fauci, some of the criticism's unwarranted, some of them is very fair. If you're going to be in that role and you're going to be the highest paid government employee we got on that matter and you're the expert, you've got to be aware of that, don't you?
2: I think so. There there is a one of the things I like to say is, and again, return to this idea of a science-based run society. When you mix science and politics, the Ten result is tends to not be to to scientize the politics, but to politicize the science.
1: Does politics always win when it's science? Not to interrupt you, but does politics always win when it's politics versus science? Because it sure looks like it is right now.
2: It feels like that a lot. Um, And it it gets it gets very difficult. And just just to give an example of where the politics uh, across the science in this particular case, when the uh, George Floyd protests started, There was a letter that came out from a bunch of scientists saying, well, the anti-lockdown protests were bad and people shouldn't have done that because that could spread COVID. But these protests are good, so we should allow them, even though there's a risk of spreading COVID. And I wrote an article for Ordinary Times saying this is really, really bad. You're destroying your credibility here because you can't say that our scientific opinion is changing based on politics. You do have to cross over sometime. I've commented sometimes on the science and I've sometimes commented on the, on the policy, um, you know, as sort of a, a, a blogger and a, and a writer and, and, you know, being on Twitter. But you have to be very careful when you cross over those roles because if there is a perception that your politics are informing the science, you're really damaging your credibility.
1: Yeah, Michael Siegel joining us. This all happened about the same time the Emily Oster piece came out in the Atlantic. If you don't know what we're talking about, we both read it. I've already commented on You've heard my comments on it, so I'll let you rebut here in just a second. Uh, the piece was Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. We dealt with it on this program. You can go back and listen to that episode from a couple of days ago. Basically, and by the way, the title was horrible. You, you need to actually read the piece to be fair to her. Um, she, I have found her to be mostly level-headed throughout the pandemic on most things. There's some things I don't agree, but she's not been a bomb thrower. Um, I think she's been mostly even handed. She goes through this pretty like, look, the education stuff was bad. The government stuff was bad. People not listening about the vaccines was bad. I think she's pretty even handed. I think the title kind of throws people off. They reacted to the title, didn't read the whole piece. Having said that the title poses a question that we must deal with. And I've dealt with it. Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. So when something about the same time the fuel's getting thrown on lab leak fire, you know, this goes into my take on and I'll just summarize it real quick and then I'll give you the floor on it. My take on it was, well, it depends. Are you talking about people that made an honest mistake? Are you talking about people that just didn't know any better and adjusted as they went to the information? Is it people that made a mistake and said, hey, I messed up. I didn't know any better. Of course, those people should get it, should get some grace and get some forgiveness. But there's a lot of malicious people that use this for a lot of different reasons that don't have one little iota of regret. No, I don't think they should get amnesty because you need accountability for this stuff. And when you're talking about something like a lab leak theory or the origin theories, that's why you look at that, because you want to prevent this from happening again. And you don't get that without accountability. So I can't get on board with a blanket amnesty, even though I think we all should treat each other a little bit better. Your thoughts after reading the piece and hearing my commentary.
2: Well, I I agree with a lot of what you said. A lot of people had not read the piece and more, more of them are not familiar with who Emily Oster is. She is, if you're jumping on her, you're shooting your own side. She was one of the first ones to say we should be reopening schools. She was saying that in summer 2020. She was saying she's an economist and she said, looking at the data, it does not look like we're getting a lot of spread in schools. Now, there's a caveat to that. There were mitigations. There was improvements in ventilation, masking and especially once vaccines came out about six months later, that really made it uh, easier to put people back in school. So she was one of the good guys. You don't want really to be jumping on her. She And as you point out, she's also talking about the early days. You know, people forget what it was like two and a half years ago, that this was kind of terrifying that we had this disease coming out. We didn't know a lot about it. We knew it was very infectious. We knew it killed. And in the early days we probably you know we probably did overreact because we didn't want to happen to happen in the united states what happened in italy you know, people like to say well COVID only kills one percent of the people who catch it which as, as though that one percent is not a lot but that's if you're getting first-rate medical care in italy you remember when they really got hit hard they were doing triage they were saying this person's 80 years old we're just going to let them die we don't have the re- resources to treat everyone this person's morbidly obese, we're gonna let them die. We don't have the resources to treat everyone. And a lot of the restrictions early on were to prevent that situation from happening in, the, in America, which it did. We did not get to that, quite that point of triage. Now we know that some of those were arbitrary and kind of stupid. Like, you know, she, she talks about beaches being shut down. Beaches were one of the safest places you could have be. We didn't really know that at the time, but in retrospect, that was that was dumb. A lot of things were kind of arbitrary and capricious. But if you think having arbitrary, capricious overreactions to a public danger is unique to COVID, I would suggest that you're not terribly familiar with the history of American politics. We do this with everything. And that plugs into sort of what you were saying that this exposed the way we react to issues, that we have a tendency to say, we must do something. This is something. Let's do it. Oh, you don't want to do it? Then you don't want to do anything. And so I think we we did need a more vigorous debate on these subjects. Schools. It wasn't obvious that schools could be kept open because, you know, I mean, I'm just getting over a cold my son brought home from school. But it does appear that we could reopen schools. And I remember I was teaching at Penn State in fall of 2020, and a lot of people were telling me this is going to be a disaster. We're going to have mass casualties. We're going to shut down the school in five weeks and so forth. And we didn't. We had we did have a lot of students get sick. Um, some of them seriously, but between masking and eventually vaccinations and uh, central quarantine for students who got who were exposed and lots of testing, we were able to keep in-person schooling into from the beginning of it till Thanksgiving break. And, you know, that was a, a learning lesson for us that, yes, we can control this without sending everyone home. I also think people didn't anticipate what a disaster online learning was going to be. You know, we've been doing online learning for a while, especially in colleges. I mean, you did online classes for your education and you you had good things to say about them in some cases. I don't think anyone anticipated just how bad it was going to be. So later decisions are a lot more debatable. Oster was uh, advocating for opening schools in the fall. I think it could have made a good case then. By spring, when we had most of the teachers vaccinated, you absolutely could have opened schools. And so uh, I think we should have a a really good uh, discussion about that. But I would point out to a lot of the people jumping on Oster and a lot of people criticizing the early decision making. If we start holding people accountable for things they said and did during COVID, it's not going to go the way you think. We're going to be talking about holding people accountable who said this was just the flu. We're going to be holding people accountable who, you know, were vaccine and continue to lie about the vaccine, saying they're unsafe. There is a now a very good scientific uh, paper out. Showing that red areas of the country had much higher death rates than blue areas of the country, even when you correct for differences in age, because they were way less vaccinated. And that was a lot of vaccine skepticism that was pushed by a lot of the people jumping on Emily Oster and saying she's she's wrong and she's crazy and she's stupid, that they pushed this vaccine skepticism, which killed conservatively tens of thousands of people that didn't need to die. So we're going to talk about that kind of accountability, or are we just talking about accountability for those early days? Now I do think they have. Two legitimate points when they talk about the early days of of, uh, COVID and and the sort of um, government, you know, the, the sort of establishment response. One is the hypocrisy that you had, you know, people saying you can't go to your grandmother's funeral. And then when John Lewis dies, they have a big funeral or people saying you can't go out to eat. And then they're having dinner at the French Laundry. Absolutely call out hypocrisy. And those people who were hypocrites absolutely need to be held accountable. And I also think that we should talk about the certainty with with a lot of of these things were said when people, the scientists less than the media, but even some of the scientists were saying, if you go to a baseball game, you're killing grandma. You know, that was just, you know, that kind of certainty was not warranted by the data we had at the time. And this is a, a dilemma for science. A lot of times, if you make it clear that we're not really sure this is our best our the best piece of knowledge we have. People think it, that you don't know what you're talking about, so that's a, a difficult thing, line to thread. So I do think those are are very legitimate criticisms. But plugging back into what you were saying on Tuesday, overall, I think COVID exposed a lot of the underlying problems we have in our politics and the way we discuss things. That you know, you we you and I talked about gun control a few months ago. We have one side that says if you're against gun control, you want kids to die. You know, or If we have the other side that it says, if you want gun control, you want tyranny. And, you know, there's this tendency to extreme your opponent's views so that they're easier to dismiss. And so a lot of these hysteria, a lot of the hysteria, a lot of the certainty of the ad hominem was not unique or new to COVID. These are dysfunctions in our political system, dysfunctions in the way we discuss the issues. And COVID, because it was one of the biggest, probably the biggest crisis we have had since World War II, amplify these dysfunctions.
1: Now, it's Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. You know, the one that got me where I turned, I, I just went, okay, this is, remember when they banned the seeds up in Michigan, you could not buy seeds to plant. I
2: was actually just going to mention that.
1: That's, that's the one for me where I was like, okay. And remember this is like, this is one of the first banned things. Like this is even before I think we shut schools down. They started doing this stuff. I'm like, okay, you're just, you're just, this is masturbatory. This is, there is no, rhyme reason. That's the one that really got me.
2: Yeah. um, For those of you don't know, um, there was in Michigan, they had grocery stores open, but they had non-essential items roped off. And so it's where they roped off the seed aisle saying, you know, you can't for seeds. And their logic was, we only want people to go to stores if they absolutely have to. We don't want them shopping. But the amount of time it takes to get seeds from a store and the amount of risk that people are exposed to Is minimal. This is the this was the big problem. And it is a again, a dysfunction in our political system of not looking at cost benefit analysis. The benefit of roping off seed aisles was could not be measured with the web telescope. But the inconvenience it caused to people was was significant. And frankly, having people go outside and garden was one of the better things they could do.
1: It's insanity. Dr. Michael Siegel. The most appearances on this program ever. We're going to keep that going as long as we can because he's really, really sharp. And he's becoming a multimedia, multi-platform superstar with his YouTube channel. Also writes at Ordinary Time. Let folks know what you got going on, where they can follow you, all the different things you've got going on. Your latest that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier, the throughput, that is up at Ordinary-Times.com as it is every Thursday. The YouTube channel, your Twitter. Also wrote a good little book, by the way. You got to go pick it up. Let everybody know what you got going on there, sir.
2: Uh, sure. I'm, and Ordinary Times is a good gateway to everything I do. All my videos I post there uh, so that people can find them. I'm I, Actually, now that I have a few subscribers, uh, you can just go to YouTube and Google my name, Michael Siegel Astronomy, and you'll find uh, my video channel. And uh, hopefully you'll find something there that you find interesting. Uh, join the ongoing 2,000 comment debate over what the best spaceships in science fiction are Um. But well, yeah, that's that's the best way to find me is usually through ordinary times.
1: We're going to do that one where we talk about the crew and the uh, the military setup of those space captains, too. I'm, I can't wait to get in on that. That's going to be a fun one. Yeah, Dr. We, Michael Siegel. I'm yeah, great. he was my guest. It, 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 I I just always love we get so obsessed with the, you just proved it. They get so obsessed with the ships. You forget you got to have a crew to run that thing. Yep. Does the crew match the ship? Because then the ship doesn't work and doesn't make any sense. But we'll get yeah, into that. Somewhere. Not all
2: officers either. <laughs>
1: yeah. Hey, uh, don't get me. Like, me I'm either. a retired sergeant. Don't get me started on lieutenants. Like, all the lieutenants are superstars. I'm like, no, lieutenants are like baby giraffes. They can't even walk in a straight line. You got to like hold them up. It's ridiculous. Like that's. See, I'm giving you all the good channel stuff. I'm not going to give it to you for free. You're going to have to subscribe to his YouTube channel. Doctor Michael Siegel, love it, buddy. Thanks for the time, sir.
2: All right. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir.
1: All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Her Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over a hundred episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan Yes, I know it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. If you feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse, this is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.